Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason, and you can follow me at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. And I'm Harry. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Skeleton crew today, boys, and uh, I'm going to nominate Harry for uh, the summary, classic Mackin summary, uh, for the movie that we're going to be talking about today. Go yeah, ahead. I have a lot to live up to. Live up to uh, so it's fitting that I did absolutely no work. Gigantic shoes anything. to fill. Yeah, yeah. as always, uh, Aaron couldn't join us today, uh, RIP. Um, so today we're talking about The Andromeda Strain, the uh, 1971 science fiction thriller film uh, by Robert Weiss, Wise, I think, uh, based on the 1969 novel by Michael Crichton of the same name. Nice. Nice. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it stars Arthur Hill, James Olsen, Kate Reed, and David Wayne. Um, on Wikipedia, it says as a team of scientists who investigate a deadly organism of extraterrestrial origin. So what happens in this movie is that, um, a U.S. government satellite crashes in a town of 68 people, um, called Piedmont, New Mexico. Um, all of the residents die very quickly or nearly all the residents do. Uh, they call in these disease specialists, virologists to recover, um, the sort of specimens and find out what happened there. Um, the, in the process, these people believe that they might be dealing with a pathogen of extraterrestrial origin. So they call in the specialist, Dr. Stone, who leads a team of, um, sort of multidisciplinary scientists, including, um, surgeons, virologists, uh, and, um, sort of other, other specialists in his top secret underground facility called wildfire, which was established ostensibly, uh, for responses to germs like these, um, and things proceed from there. Excellent. Uh, could not have done it better myself. Uh, this is a movie. We're all kind of in agreement that it's a way more interesting movie than it is a good one. Uh, but I kind of want to start just by talking like the vibe here, despite it being, you know, 1970s, uh, early, I mean, I, I kind of want to call it a creature feature just because there's a monster, uh, like an unknown monster killer virus that's hiding just around the corner could be, uh, you know, they don't know anything about it. And that's why the they smallest have, of creatures, the greatest of thrills. Which is, is maybe no, I just made that up. And also it's kind of false advertising. <laughs> because the, the, thr- the thrills of this movie are not necessarily there are, the biggest. Well, that's the thing. There are zero thrills. Ladies not a lot of zero thrills. thrills. Uh, I, uh, I was completely unthrilled. My, my mouth was closed. Well, most there's of the some, movie, there's some lasers and running at the end. That's sort of tense. There's I, like, I want like I a wanted, little bit of pulse quickening at that point in the movie. I wanted that segment to be way more like 
Resident Evil 4 than it ended up being. You, you wanted right. him to like do flips and shit over the yeah. lasers? Yeah. I wanted him to dive through the crisscross lasers, Lupin the Third style. Uh, but no, uh, this is a movie that's way, as you probably could tell, way more process oriented than you might imagine. Uh, it is a team of scientists. It's not um, a, an action flick from the moment that two scientists land in Piedmont to discover like the effects of the virus and try and recover the satellite to the very end almost everything is buried in minutiae process detail instruction it's, it's very rules. funny right it is it is bizarre and fascinating and i'd like i i approve of that tone it's not a thing that i think made the film really fun or enticing but i want to get you guys' thoughts about that because i think we're we're all in agreement that it is that but whether or not that was enjoyable or good is is a point of opinion here yeah i just wanted to say real quick um just sort of as a point of order we're recording this on uh july 4th um, this movie is going to be showing at the Trilon on um, July 10th. That's a Friday through um, July 14th. So we're actually getting out ahead of it this time, right, Jason? Sorry if I'm committing yeah, to record. At, so that's at long something last. worth talking. Yeah, that's something we've always sort of uh, strived for, but we always wanted to go see the movies, so we're, we were always kind of behind. Um, well, and the other, and the other thing was like usually there were multiple movies playing every week at the trilon and it was like right. how do we pick do we pick because like there's one that we want to see is it evenly split uh now the trilon has gone to one movie one film per week uh just many many showings of it to try and space out uh you know the number of people in the theater at a time to respect social distancing rules and to uh try and maintain some form of revenue so it's it's given us the opportunity now to try and get out ahead of some of these episodes and we're really happy to do it we did it first with our last episode attack the block uh which we got a preview screening on and uh, and this is our second hopefully we'll be able to continue this well into um well I don't know how much I actually wish that we can get to continue doing this because it would mean that the trial line is is still limited. But uh, yeah, yeah, so stop me. Obviously, this is a this is a quarantine appropriate movie. You can go see it at the Trilon if you're so inclined from the 10th to the 14th. You could also do what we did. What I, I guess I assume we all did, which is we all uh, watched it on the internet. And then um, what I'm going to do with which John has sort of encouraged us to do is you can buy a ticket to the movie and just not go. Um, and then not only are you supporting the Trilon, but you're also kind of supporting everybody who goes see it to see it because um, the theater will be less full than it was, which is kind of cool. Um, so you can do that uh, or you could just go see the movie. I think it would be super fun to see at the Trilon uh, because this movie is very funny and uh, fun to watch, I think, is, is where I came down on it, I guess, Jason, to get back to your question. There was a point in the movie um, about 45 minutes in, I want to say, to a two-hour movie when I realized what the movie was going to be, which was when we were entering into about 15 minutes of describing the sterilization process as it oh unfurls in steps. So how seriously, right. How, how wildfire works in this movie is there are lit levels that you have to descend. And as you descend these levels, you go through this, this um, very in-depth tiered process of uh, human sterilization where you, and it, it keeps showing them they have these these paper uniforms they're wearing that they continuously discard and burn as they go through these different steps of um, immunizing themselves or or removing outside influence. And it, it's it's fun, and it's like literally half the movie. And it it was really funny to be like, it's such a departure from what traditional narrative uh, sort of um, filmmaking is that calling this a thriller was really funny to me. Um, yeah, it's 
like it's mostly world building, right? Yeah. Uh, Cody and I were talking before the call started um, about how there's always some form of like klaxon uh, call in the background, like just overly technical jargon uh, instructing people in the base. And it's more than the four scientists we've mentioned. This is a whole crew of people who have stationed out this uh, this base underneath New Mexico or wherever it is. Um, but it it's it's I had the same feeling, Harry, uh, around the time when like when uh stone is describing to the md i forget his name um uh, like the color coding of each level within wildfire and i'm like okay so the color coding and i think why 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 do i need to know this why am i being shown this why am i being told this and it ultimately has very little to do with the plot and the story but it is it sets up like the danger the separation and the process and care taken to get you through this this world i i i found that very interesting, but many and kind times of charming, movie. right? And yeah. it's sort of like a shaggy dog sense where it was just like, I really, <laughs> I like this silly, stupid thing that this yeah, I, is doing. I like how much they're getting into it. Uh, Cody, did you feel similarly? Yeah. Uh, what you're talking about, Jason, I think it like it, it's utterly like shades of what I liked most about uh, Andromeda Strain and like the only kind of flavor of reason that I would ever revisit this is that like this movie is first and foremost either like accidentally or intentionally it's it's obviously in love with the i don't want to say i don't want to say it's in love with the story that it's trying to tell but it's in love with showing it or or painting it in a certain way like uh i i thought about um I think we were talking about this a little bit. I, I thought of Fantastic Voyage a lot while watching this movie and how in Fantastic Voyage, like there there's so much effort being put into the sets, the the editing, the various uh like levels of production design, and like each subsequent scene is sort of an excuse to show off the new like whatever whatever's trying to showcase whether it's like a, an interactive screen or like something moving without like wires obviously you know pulling it from one side of the screen to the other and as as they were kind of going down into the you know further and further into the the levels of the the wildfire kind of laboratories like that that's the impression i got and i was like why are we lingering here so long why am i watching this 130 minute movie when we're spending half of our time just you know in a in a building like proceeding through a building and i i figured that was maybe what like i was supposed to be taking away from it and there's a lot of 70s-ness uh to enjoy oh, uh, about this uh like so many um diopter shots if, if that's oh, what those are. I, I wrote that yeah. down specifically the I diopter did, shots too I yeah too. i you know what i wrote down i wrote down more diopters than a brian de palma film it's like <laughs> yes your shot is a fucking diopter <laughs> yeah, yeah brian de palma cry your cry your heart out or whatever the phrase is um but yes yeah, like some fun shooting experimentation in general right there are also those um those like panel shots where like yes the majority yeah, i wrote that down too like, yeah like thomas yeah, affair. Yeah, I got to say those those whip, those whip there's one near the beginning. Uh there's one near the beginning where they're uh, scouting out the town to find the, you know, survivors and just discover what happened there and it's like one person who's searching a house stays in frame um but limited to one side of the screen and then the rest of the screen is just a, dedicated to showing you small shots of everybody in the town, everybody that they're seeing. Uh it's bizarre. It's 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 like it's this really is, cool. It's great. I uh this is sort of one of my Aaron Grossman um 
take asides. But I had the distinct feeling watching this movie that, like, I really miss that shit. Like, I really wish that that the bizarre sort of formalist um, self-consciously taking you out of the movie uh, experimentation was a thing that we did more in movies, right? Like, I, I wish that I, I wish that there were movies that still had shots like, okay, all of a sudden now, just because most of the screen is going to go black and there's going to be like a little panel where we see one guy and then yeah. another panel appears like a comic book and there's just a dead body in that panel. It's like, what the <laughs> fuck? I, 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 like, really, I really enjoyed because like that is the most uh, we'll get back to your point, Cody, but you brought it up. So it was kind of, yeah, sorry, Cody, I didn't mean to, uh, no, I, I, like, I exhausted all, all, all kind of what I had to say about that. I'd love to hear what you guys thought about that too. The specifically the like stylistic and formal elements of this movie were so interesting and captivating because they're almost completely at odds. You know, there are a few shots when, uh, you know, the, the more and more I watch this movie, I was like, okay, okay we're going to focus on the minutia. We're going to focus on the like second to second developments in our understanding of this virus. And that is the whole flow of the movie. That is the plot. Essentially in one scene, we discover, uh, that it can corrode a certain type of plastic that mimics human skin. In another, we discover that maybe blood acidity is something that it can't live with, or, you know, a certain level of pH. Right, it's blood. like, a, it's a medical mystery on top of yeah. everything else that it is. Right. Which, which was, yeah. And that's a great lens to look at it through. But like that doesn't quite jive with some of the stylistic and formal ideas that we saw again, like that windowed presentation and a lot of the diopters, like almost horror type shots that like jerk you out from that. You're reading a textbook vibe into, man, this is all, this is nearly trippy. And a lot of the special effects, uh, contribute to that feeling as well. Uh, what was his name? Um, Paul something, something, I, I should have looked this up. Uh, D- sorry, Douglas Trumbull, who did, uh, effects special effects for 2001 a space odyssey um was one of the people who helped make uh the, like, visu- visualizations of the virus and of like the computer models that that can help uh figure it out and stuff there's a whole lot going on visually in this movie a whole lot more than you might think and i think that is that's part of why it remained an interesting thing to watch rather than just like a you know you tend to lose some of that tension when it's just minute to minute like are, we're barely scraping by an understanding, you know, in one scene we've got the whole crew advocating for nuking the town that the satellite landed in. And then maybe, I mean, not five minutes later, they say, okay, it's about no, five minutes nix, later. Yeah. Nix that order because we just discovered that probably the virus thrives in radioactive and, environments. And you get that, that classic sci-fi advisor to the president who's just an asshole about everything. He's like, well, <laughs> first, first you told me not to do the town. So now what are, you, what are you trying to tell me? And it's like, why is this dude so combative about this? Like, just listen to the fucking expert science. Yeah. It's uh, it's a, a fun and not so fun corollary to our current times where the president yeah. will not listen to scientists. Well, yeah. That was a funny thing, right? Is that like, uh, this this movie in so many ways, and I'll sort of get into this, but it it feels like Ur Cinema Sins filmmaking sensibilities, where so the movie goes so far out of its way to anticipate and respond to the issues that uh, that the informed audience might have of it, that it even is to the detriment of the um, narrative or dramatic pacing. But hmm. what sometimes it kind of works, right? Like like uh, I think. A funny thing that the movie got me with, even though, again, the movie sort of classically didn't end up doing anything with this, was that as I was watching Wildfire, I was getting sort of depressed that, like, man, 
it's it's hilarious that this is a, a 1970s fantasy movie where um, virology and the study of disease would have resources like this, right? Where like like <laughs> they had the ha- they had these extant secret labs uh, dedicated to the study and protection of uh, the American people from disease, and it was like I'm sitting here in my apartment. Uh, for the the fourth consecutive month in a plague that the government has done nothing about, and I was like, "Well, shit." But then in the in the third act of this movie, it is revealed, sort of very um, matter of factly and, and sort of uh, um, poorly, in, in my opinion, that in fact what wildfire was is a sort of staging site for germ warfare, um, and it, it was set up to like anticipate and combat in like biological warfare uh and that's why it has the resources that it had had Uh, and i thought that was sort of a funny good um like reveal right yeah i i i also enjoyed it as a like twist i don't think that it was so much a surprise because like in the opening credits, they use the phrase, they use a lot of graphics to like connote the the area that the satellite landed in and sort of the alien nature of the virus. Uh, but like they use the term biowar map so many times in that opening sequence and the opening credits. I'm like, biowar, that's not really the vibe. That's not really like what I anticipated this movie to be. So I was like, well, that's that's a tip that maybe this things aren't always as they seem. Uh, I think in, in microcosm, like the fact that the four protagonists are so constantly and consistently focused on the very minute aspects of their responsibility and jobs. Like there's a whole scene dedicated to talking about how, how tired they all are. And then the leader uh, stone, uh, like de facto leader decides to um, he mandates that everybody get at least six hours of sleep per 24 hours of, of waking, uh, which like a very interesting little colorful world building thing that has nothing to do with anything. But like the more and more that it builds that the more and more convinced I was that like the larger plot beats uh, and maybe the more exciting stuff and the like overarching again, like the government isn't telling you everything. There are secrets here. The president doesn't want to listen. All of that stuff just floats above where the focus is all down with the actual virus, with the research, with the, with the, uh, you know, robot arms that can open the cages and, and kill rats. Um, a lot of that stuff, I, I don't know, just like the mind space it put me in was focusing on the little tiny details rather than the overarching story. And I think that's why I was able to justify it in my head as like a very plot movie instead of a very like story film, if that makes any sense. It totally makes sense. And like, I think that that's a good transition to talk about Michael Crichton, right? Which is like, this is such a Crichton um, joint uh, that, that his sensibilities are so imbued throughout this thing. Um, So Michael Crichton was uh, a doctoral graduate for medicine at Harvard um, before he went, he went on to become the famous novelist that he is. I believe, I believe it was medical, um, he was a medical doctor. I can't totally remember. But anyway, uh, so that the sensibilities that you're talking about and the interest is so clearly coming from his um, his own interests and slant experiences, right? Where like like the whole Crichton um, sort of theory for 
story writing in this is so clear where it was like, it's this sort of neoliberal uh, fantasy about smooth operators operating correctly uh, where it's like, he thinks that the real heroes are the doctors and the scientists and the experts, right? It's a little bit like uh, contagion in that way. Um, I mean, this is the guy who went on to create the TV show ER, right? So like it's, and this was an early novel of his. And so you can really see those sensibilities um, sort of unvarnished in this and, and even a little bit unadorned. Uh, and it, it's, it's so clear that, that we were all really enamored, I guess, in 1971 of this idea of like a real expert who is, who is sort of showing us what really happens, right? Like there's sort of an appeal to a kind of realism in this movie, or if not a realism, then at least uh, a deep fascination with um, implied expertise and expertise sort of being its own ends uh, and its own fascination, even beyond the, um, the drama inherent therein, um, where like, like there are characters and there are plots in this story, right? But the, the characters primarily exist, exist to be experts. Um, they're, they're sort of given flourishes of characterization only to sort of make their expertise more flavorful not the other way around. Uh, like interpersonal drama is not is not the point here. And their character arcs aren't really the point here either. The point is really watching them operate and watching them work through this together. Um, and the, the drama only exists, again, to lend sort of um, texture to that, not to be what the, the movie's really about, which is kind of fun. I, it's like weirdly refreshing uh, as, a, as a sort of relic, I think. Go ahead, Cody. Sorry. No, you're good. Um, that uh, I have really nothing to to add to that um, concretely. That was, um, I think, a pretty good breakdown. I'm not a, a Crichton literature or filmography expert by any means, um, and so like I don't have a lot of context for like what he brings to the table, other than the fact that I've seen like Jurassic Park a lot of times. But uh, and you alluded to it uh, a little bit, Harry. But just um, the the Andromeda Strain was the first novel of his to become uh, or to be adapted into a movie, and it was Crichton's first screenwriting uh, credit um, overall at the age of twenty nine, which it um, shows is it, also right? haunting a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You you get those early flavors, and there's clearly something that people. Um, you know, the people who made this film and the people watching it were, were very enamored with, like, that's really obvious, right? And, and Michael Crichton was hot, man. He was a, he was a hot doctor writer. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. I need to Google Michael Crichton. He won like people's daddy, Michael Crichton, people al- alive at one point or something. Whoa, um, doctor. Yeah. He, he really had it going on. So you can Ooh. see why everybody was like, Crichton is the man. Uh, he was also like man. six, nine or something. What? So just a, a nice. Giant, like six, a giant, fine. A giant in the medical world, a giant in the literary world. <laughs> the physical world. A giant in the physical <laughs> world. Uh, I Okay, so how much of the uh like lack of interpersonal drama and lack of uh like really meaty character work that you would have liked to have seen and 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 had it shaped by by professions rather than the other way around? How much of that do you think is due to writing slash uh, plotting? And how much of that do you think is due to performances and acting in this movie? Because uh, there's one character that I think we all agree is like the standout best character, but most other people, most other characters tend to fall into tropes, right? Uh, from Stone yeah. to the MD. Like the MD is very, very focused, uh, very like inhumanely focused on finding 
the uh, physiological effects of the virus and seeing if he can diagnose like it's uh, it's 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 uh, some of its features he, from the classic cold driven scientist. Right. And he yeah. contrasts with uh, Mark Hall, the doctor who is interested in what he refers to as his his patients, whom are the, the two people who have somehow miraculously survived the Andromeda strain thus far. And so one of the sort of B plots of the movie is Mark Hall attempting to treat these people and in the process figure out the um, lethality sort of mechanism of the strain through them. So that that's how the medical mystery unfolds. But you're right, they have a foil relationship with one another, right? Where like, uh, there's the, the scientist, um, biologist, and then there's the humane doctor. Uh, and they sort of play off each other that way. Right. And they all, I guess every character is written, like you said, to sort of be the best at what they do sort of thing. And it makes sense. You know, I'm getting like, it's, it's a trope, right? It's, it's a, it's a structure to tell a story through like, like annihilation, right? Like you, you are the four best of your field that we have available. We've tried so many other things. Right. Um, we're Do you remember that, you line, that line in Annihilation where um, she's like, scientist, soldier, you can fight, you can learn. I, that line's so bad, but the, it's, 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 so it's, bad. Exactly, it's exactly what you're talking about, right? Where it's just like, yeah. we're going to dispense, you know what this is, like we're, we're moving. Uh, we're just going to, we're going to move, blow right past it. Um, I, I guess I like, Part of, and it's usually not this way for me, but part of what was so essential to me enjoying the movie was my ability to divorce myself from really caring about these characters. Uh, I don't know if that was anybody else's experience, but like I'm thinking specifically of uh, Dr. Leavitt, who again, I think is is the best character uh, played by Kate Reed, um, who like she has the most, I think in terms of like character building plot elements, she has epilepsy. That's only like quite revealed near the end. It's seated earlier where she, where she says that she doesn't really like red lights. Um, and then a couple of times she actually experiences like mild seizures, uh, as the, as the story, as the climax comes to a head. Uh, but like, I didn't feel myself connecting to any of these characters and that made it a lot easier for me to get interested in the, in the very clinical and the very sterilized story. Did that happen for anybody else? Uh, yeah, I think so to an extent. Um, and I would actually be okay with us like focusing on, on Dr. Ruth, leave it for a little bit here. Um, Please. we were talking, yeah, we were talking about her a little bit before uh, we were recording and, um, again, I'm not really a book guy, uh, in particular this book, um, because I didn't do my research, but, uh, that character was a, a man in the novel and there were discussions about, uh, changing that character in the film adaptation. Um, just to, to make them stand out more. And I think the early talks were, again, bringing back Fantastic Voyage, uh, was to make that character into a Raquel Welch in Fantastic Voyage-esque character who was um, more of like, uh, you know, decorative, um, to put it that way, um, not really contributing in substantive ways uh, like Dr. Leavitt ended up doing, I, I think, in the more, uh, you know, in, the actual film version, you know, much more fleshed out character. And I think that was uh, a good move overall. They apparently consulted with um, the people making this film, apparently consulted with scientists or, or, you know, quote unquote experts and be like, yeah, this is uh, a representation of this type of character that we would feel better about. And she's definitely, they, she has uh, a personality uh, written for her. And I think, uh, I also think Kate Reed plays that character pretty well. She's, 
um, she feels more vibrant compared to. Like, I think she's three. great. Yeah, compared especially compared to like the three vanilla fellows that she's with uh, throughout the the rest of the movie. Um, I think the movie codes her in in kind of a weird way, where it's uh, y- you know we we find out that uh, that epilepsy bit you know a little bit you know there are a few different deus ex machinas that's not really a deus ex machina but you know a detail that's kind of thrown in because we're running out of time you know this movie's getting a little long uh so we have to make sure that gets shoehorned in um and then the whole that's kind of used against her you know they they kind of say as much well she's epileptic so she probably fucked up some of the testing um you know something like that there there are some other examples too uh i think i i liked her character a lot overall but it wasn't like you know as as great as it could be but i'll let right. somebody else talk about her it, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows with her character I, and it's also worth mentioning just as a side note hers is i think one of two uh actually like lo- written or at least like she's one of two primary uh and focused on female characters in this or in in this story the other being um a, a black woman who's mostly reduced to being like a nurse character uh unfortunately and you know sexualized a few times with a wink and a nod uh but yeah i i think i agree cody with with your uh assertions that even leave character can feel underserved a lot by by the plot like that the fact that she has a seizure right near the end and like it puts her out of action for the actual climax classic, like classically stupid, unnecessary. Like she could have probably been pretty helpful in that climax. Uh, and they just put her out of it for no reason. It felt like a scene that was lifted directly from the book. Uh, and it felt a little lazy to me. Uh, Harry, it seems like you've got thoughts too. Yeah. And I had my hand up. Uh, I broke protocol. Listen, uh, I had, I had the override key for this conversation. Uh, and I had to get to a substation to, uh, to deactivate the, the nuclear takes that Harry was about to unleash. All right. That that was a good enough metaphor that I forgive you. I think in my, in my great, um, grace. Uh, yeah, I have a couple of different (laughs) thoughts about, um, Dr. Ruth leave it. Um, I think that, that you characterize that really well. Um, I would also just add that like, maybe this is a low bar, particularly because Jason, like you had, um, like you had said, the other main uh, female character in this movie, Karen Anson, who's played by uh, Paula Kelly is um, a much more traditional sci-fi female character for worse and worse. Right. Where like she exists primarily to be like very attractive and to be sexualized by, um, one of the patients, which sucks. Um, although she has some good scenes in spite of all of that, she also does the thing that I really can't stand. This is a dumb aside, but like the thing in, in sixties and seventies movies where the young attractive female nurse is, uh, sexualized by the patients. And rather than being put out by it, she's sort of like, like condescendingly charmed by it, where she's like, Oh, you old ledger. And it's like, I fucking hate it when that yeah, happens. Yeah, why, uh, and it's like, Oh, well you've given the character agency and, and control over her own sexuality. And it's like, no, you wrote this character like that. You wrote yeah. that character to enjoy this. Why, why is that? Yeah. I, I got upset about that performatively, it's, it's but just I like, got upset. Right. It's just, it's just like the, a way of, of just, or not justifying, but, but um, sort of disarming, that weird, creepy sexualizing is just to be like, oh, she thinks it's funny. It's fine. She thinks it's funny. 
Um, anyway, but like in comparison to that, I thought Dr. Ruth uh, Levitt was actually a really fascinating character in a couple of ways in that like she is such an unusual character to see in movies like this where like she is a middle-aged, not like movie star hot woman whose personality is that she's sort of combative and cantankerous in like a funny witty way. Yeah. And that cantankerousness and uh, dry wit is not derided by the film or the camera. In fact, it's, she's like almost the, the comic relief and not in a, not in a derisive way. Like we're supposed to think that she's funny and clever and like her as a character, which is a rarity for female characters now. Uh, and so like, that's a, that's again, it's sad. That's, that's a low bar, but like the fact that there was a middle-aged woman who was allowed to be funny and grumpy in a way that wasn't considered bad in this movie was like, maybe honestly, one of my favorite parts about the whole movie, but then like you had talked about Jason, we really run up hardcore against the limitations of this movie's idea and sort of theory for character and uh, script writing, which is that ultimately Levitt's most important contribution to the story is a physical one. It's the fact that she has a act one setup, act three payoff um, moment of plot work in the same way that the nuclear substation does, where it's revealed in act one or implied that she has LFP, um, epilepsy, excuse me. And then in act three, the epilepsy, uh, gets in the way and complicates things in a dire circumstance. Right. And like, ultimately all of this woman's, uh, cantankerousness and genius and dry wit amounts to the fact that she has are is, is nothing in the face of the fact that she has epilepsy, which is such a fucking waste of that character and sort of summarizes, uh, in microcosm, the limitations of this movie, right? Which is that it's not actually interested in making her interesting or giving her a plot arc. It's interested in telling this process-oriented story and uh, unfurling dramas that the experts can overcome dramatically, right? Uh, Or semi-dramatically, as your mileage may vary. Uh, Yeah, you're totally right. And um, Harry, I I like what you, you know, kind of going back to the like the personality she brings and the i mean she she steals so many scenes that she's in especially early on and i was torn right because like uh you're right like not many movies of that time and also of this time would allow uh, a woman to come in and be that type of i don't know comedic relief is uh maybe not the right term for it, but uh, close right like uh, I got a lot of laughs uh, from the the shit that she said and did. And like eventually, you know, going back to how this movie codes her, I, I think a character even goes as far as to, cause they were talking about like the, the odd man hypothesis or whatever. And, and she kind of gets coded as the, like the odd ball of the group. And I, I was torn between whether like, this is like a somewhat uh, quote unquote progressive portrayal or regressive in that, like she, uh, you know, Kate Reed's character is is allowed to to be this vibrant of a presence, but we're still sort of othering her uh, in, you know, in a weird way. And um, uh, I, yeah, Harry, great point as far as, you know, her contributions being uh, like physical, um, you know, kind of in in the end game. Um, 
which I don't know. I'm sort of saying the same things at this point. A lot of, a lot of good and bad things, uh, I think, but I uh, imagine, imagine movie, this movie without, uh, Kate Reed in it. And like, (laughs) this would be a much more boring conversation. Uh, I think. Uh, agreed. I think the the thing we're skirting around in the idea that let, let me pitch the, the thesis of like my critical reception or response to this movie. God, that sounded really pretentious. I, I am not a critic is that like, it's very, I think good at building that um, plot focused, very authentic feeling uh, story uh, or plot around, around like what would happen if a deadly virus entered earth's atmosphere and we had to learn about it as we went. Um, but it's when it tries to like humanize that at all, that it stumbles, that it has like problems really communicating that. And I think Harry's point about Crichton, uh, being renowned, uh, in the medical field or, or scientific field, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, Cody's point that, um, the character just kind of gets, or, or like leave it specifically is just sort of, uh, maybe shamed a little bit for being for being human, for being the most human character in. I mean, maybe not intentionally, but being the most human character in the movie. There are a lot of points in this movie, I guess, that support uh, my idea of like humans are the only ones capable of error, right? And of course, that's that's the idea is that these machines are, you know, their readouts are accurate. It's just our understanding of them that fails. Um, there's that guy near the beginning who's in like one of the first levels of wildfire and his, he, he, uh, his only job is to receive messages from HQ. And when that happens, ding-a-ling, a a bell goes off. That is uh, Chekhov's gun for later on when the bell doesn't go off. And because he doesn't have an understanding of how the machine works, because he only knows to answer it when it rings, he doesn't realize that there's a scrap of paper wedged between the hammer and the bell. So it never rang. Um, There are a few moments like that where it's like it specifically pulls out like some element of human existence, some element of human error and says, this will be our undoing. This is our failure. This is the reason that like, this is why we're so focused on the process and the uh, ones and zeros of it is because whenever the human like spirit, whenever the human element is inserted into an equation, you cannot account for what comes out. Uh, Is that, is that, does that make any sense at all? Um, maybe not. Well, yes, of course. I, I think that's a, that's a really good characterization. I was just going to say, maybe not, you can't predict it, but, uh, a big thing with Michael Crichton that you've been uh, talking about, it has been, he's been all about, um, like he's sort of the, the classic scientist, um, minded person who's like the tools that we have are not good or bad. It's about how we use them. And that sort of thesis is definitely at play here with the, the interest in, um, wildfire as a sort of um morality neutral tool uh or a sort of effectiveness neutral tool and it being incumbent upon humans to learn how to use their tools correctly in both the moral and in this movie maybe even more uh is is more interested in in the the just purely scientifically effective manner (laughs) where where it's like we have to learn how to make the best use of the tools that we have and that is extended both to like human intelligence uh and human relationships as well as literal human tools right like that's sort of the the um moral value neutral statement uh that that Crichton was playing with a little bit here even as it applies to morality in an interesting way um which which gets across to to my sort of um even less uh critical 
critical reception of this movie, um, which is that like, it's tough not to read a lot of um, author and era into this movie uh, mm-hmm. in sort of a fun way. Right. We're like, like this, like Cody had pointed out, this is Michael Crichton's first screenwriting credit. It's one of his first novels. He's sort of fresh faced. You, you can imagine. And, and the, the sci-fi community is sort of um, burgeoning at this time in 1971. It, this feels like a sixties movie as much as it feels like a seventies movie because it's so early. And like, you can see how the the primary interest of this movie in my mind is about reframing what science fiction storytelling and thriller storytelling looks like through the, the lens or the guise of supposed um, realist expertise, expertise driven by actual experts, right? Like you can see this movie coming out with like a sticker on it that says like written by the experts exclamation point. And it's about like, it, this is like like Michael Crichton's appeal to the idea that actually like like when you're when you're fundamentally interested in process and you're fundamentally interested in how things actually happen, not only is that not a detriment, but you can actually imbue your stories with greater texture and greater um, human interest or or um, drama. Right? It, it it's sort of about there. There's almost a sort of like. Um, defensive reassessment happening here uh in in my mind where where it's like we're going to make the the proof positive we're gonna state the thesis that this sort of process driven um minutiae driven drama is big money it's big blockbuster drama gold right uh and whether or not that's successful it's sort of interesting (laughs) yeah and i think I, th- I think what you're saying is lent credence by the fact that uh, just Wikipedia tells me that back in 2003, the Infectious Diseases Society of America uh, called the Andromeda Strain the most significant, scientifically accurate, and prototypic of all films of the uh, killer virus genre. That it uh, was just like very true and, uh, like I said, authentic to the experience of you know what might what might happen in, in this. Uh, uh, I guess um, the what they called the, the appearance of a deadly agent. Uh, and how like we would handle it scientifically um that that informed a lot of how i saw the movie but as i was watching it it, it i guess maybe to its credit it like it feels like uh i gotta give it credit for um the the transition from a novel like Crichton's mind i guess through to the director uh wise i f- forget the director yep, robert wise Rob, robert wise um like they both seemed on the same page about that, right? It was a critical success it, or like, I guess in retrospect, it's seen one way. Uh, but at the time it was a box office success. Uh, it is like heralded by scientists, uh, you know, of the modern era. I, I, I gotta say, I must give it credit for like turning that idea into a even mildly successful movie. Um, I wish at times it were a little more fun, but then that's self-sabotaging because I think that the whole, like point of the movie is that it's not it's not like a leering type uh ooh like what 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 could happen it's going to get you like it's it's where you can't see it it's not like they're crawling in the vents type horror it's like it's a suspense thriller is the word for it but it's not the right word for how you feel watching it um, yeah i mean it's funny right because sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you um no, go please. ahead oh uh i was just going to say that that like it it's funny that that you're saying that and you're, you're giving this movie credit. Like, I don't disagree, but like, I don't, 
I guess like I, I feel bad going full negative in, in putting the um, putting my cards on the table, so to speak. But like, I don't think this is good. Like, I don't think this is a good movie. I thought it was like it was like a really funny, uh, interesting, uh, charming movie. But like the plot is silly and not interesting and there aren't really characters in it. And uh, it seems more interested in making a point about the types of stories that we can tell and maybe should be telling or what, what sci-fi is about than it is interested in actually making any sort of like substantive, interesting, like dramatic artistic statement. Yeah. Uh, and the, the result for me is like a movie that is charming and bad. Uh, in in a way, uh, I think, which again, like like, what does bad mean, right? Like, I'm not trying to be an asshole about it. I think it's fun. I think it's funny. Uh, it's just that, like, it's it's like it's like not successful. I don't think. Okay, I think charming and bad is a good way to describe it uh, for me. Like, I w- was very interested in what it was doing for the first like hour. Then it gets a little like, okay, this is fully what we're doing. If you're bought in, you're bought in. If you're you're going to enjoy the rest. If you're not, if you're looking for something more uh, <laughs> thrilling, you should like dip out. I still like, I won't watch it again because it is a time sink and because it has like so few moments that are just like really interesting and cool and good. But as a piece, I without putting like a positive or negative value on that, when I say that I got to give it credit for being like a really thorough translation from book to screen. Uh, and like, I'm impressed that the screenwriters and the director were both on the same page about it. That it feels very cohesive. That is just like my, what I would consider an objective, like, uh, like a, a, an objective criterion, uh, rather than, like a value statement on it. It's, it's very thorough in its translation of those things. Not that like, that's a worthwhile thing to translate, I guess. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. Uh, yeah. Commenting on this movie's idea of like a fun night at the movies, like, uh, I don't, an example being, uh, going back to the, the odd man hypothesis, like the Andromeda strain, uh, director and filmmaking team, they just their idea of bringing in charts showing them to the audience and being like see look here there's a 0.83 chance that you know uh, a man unmarried is more likely to pull off you know this uh i don't know the the the, they're they're more likely to like successfully navigate the climax of a motion picture compared to 0.45 per you know percent or a 45% chance uh, of that of the same situation being done by like uh, someone who's married, which don't get me wrong. That's very much my shit. Um, But I imagine that is not like, I don't know. There's this weird balance that is just not struck Um, charming and bad. I I guess I'll chime in. Like, I think that's a perfectly proper characterization of, of what this movie is. Um, I don't really know who it's for. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to I mean, be it's fun, right? Like, like you had said, you the the odd man hypothesis is a is a really good um, exemplar of of what we're talking about because, like, the whole first act of this movie is like the most transparent setup to payoff I've ever maybe seen in a movie. In a couple, absolutely, of different, like they spend like ten minutes explaining the emergency lockdown procedure and um, the the way that you can disarm the nuclear device that's set to blow up 
the entire base, which then, of course, it turns out in the third act that the Andromeda strain feeds off of uh, nuclear energy and would just expand. And so if you blew up the base, you'd be destroying the world. But it's like, as they're explaining it, it's like the most obvious rubbing their hands together. Like, I wonder if this is going to be the climax of the movie that I've ever seen. And like, that's kind of silly film writing, but it is fun, right? <laughs> like it's, it's fun to, to see that, that uh, seed be planted and look forward to seeing the payoff because you know, the payoff is coming. Yeah. Uh, I think that I would be remiss if I didn't mention, like we mentioned some formal conventions and some interesting stuff that the movie did visually. Uh, if I didn't mention the score, it's sparse, but there, and when it's there, it's like almost shriekingly loud. It's, it's like not very tonal constructed music. Uh, it's, it, which, which I guess makes sense. The composer, um, is Gil Millet. I'm probably screwing up the name pronunciation of his name, but, uh, he was a composer for film, a, a jazz musician, um, he died in 2004, but, uh, this, this was probably his most popular or well-known film score. Uh, and it like injects uh, again, that like healthy, weird dose of, uh, psychedelia that this movie has running in the background a little bit, like in between scenes of just, uh, textbook nerdery is like these, these pops of color and flavor, uh, that I don't think appear often enough to make it very interesting, but they do, they did leave a mark for me, at least the soundtrack and like what the soundtrack accompanies was, uh, that's like part of how I'll remember the Andromeda strain. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up the music, Jason. Um, that's something I was noticing a lot near, near the end of the movie. Um, and I described it in my notes as like a sort of warbling, you know, like it's, it's, uh, they, they, the music almost doubles as like diegetic sound effects. Um, like there's no music coursing through the lab or anything, but there's an, there's enough machinery. And I, you mentioned earlier, I think the, like the, the, um, voice or not the voiceover, but you know, the, the automated voices communicating things over the loudspeakers of, of wildfire. Um, and then the, the music kind of comes in and, uh, provides, uh, or rather compliments the atmosphere in a way that I, that I really liked. And, uh, I'm happy for, uh, Gil Malay for, for providing the score. It's a bummer that he didn't do, like, I, I see here, he did some other things. Um, it's a bummer that his most well-known thing, uh, is the Andromeda strain, but I'm glad he was a part of it. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's really interesting that the, that you pointed out that so much of the, um, score is diegetic because that totally integrates with what this movie is supposed to be right where it's like literally the score becomes part of the process um that's like especially uh in act one where the movie is at its most self-indulgent and most uh charming right where like there are during the initial walkthrough of wildfire which takes up literally like a full fourth to third of this movie um, the score really makes its presence felt at, at a couple of different times. Uh, like when the, the two main characters are walking in, I believe maybe for the first time um, and in a couple of different places. And that's, that's when the movie is like literally like uh, motion picture as amusement park, right? Where it's like, literally we're just like, we're being shown how these practical effects work within the confines of the movie and they're good practical effects even for now much less for the 60s and 70s like they're fun to look at and like explore but they're also just like like literal sideshows right (laughs) 
um, that that bring the actual like characterization of the movie to a halt. Yeah, um, it's it's super fun how the uh, the score plays into that. That's a really good point. Yeah, your enjoyment of this movie is going to depend heavily on your how interested you are in looking at walls that have very explicit instructions on them and hearing people over an intercom that have uh, that are saying things that have nothing to do with you. Um, that that's uh, in conjunction with like the diegetic sound and music huge parts of how this movie establishes uh like the tone of of what wildfire is you know a very sterile like no no expenses no waste uh spared sort of thing yeah i, I mean it's like uh it's it's for for big nerds right like us i guess i shouldn't speak for you but i'll i'll go ahead and say us um it's it's kind of great right like it's it's also a classic sci-fi like single set movie where like the in the in the first act they're in piedmont the the desert town that doesn't look like an actual human inhabited town in the 1960s at all um but pretty soon they go to um uh they go to the secret lab right and once we're in the secret lab, we never leave the secret lab. And so this becomes a movie of gray concrete and beige uniforms. But like in the classic Star Trek or um, Forbidden Planet sense, uh, where, where it's just like we have this great set. We put all of the money for the movie into this great set. And like now we're going to play with this great set. And like I, I kind of love a sen- set movie, right? And uh especially one where like they, they make use of the set in the framing of the story and in the, um, the, the practical effects that get used. So like, it's really great from that perspective too, which is kind of how I would characterize my, what you had said also, Jason, about the whole movie is that just like your fun and the enjoyment you derive from this movie will largely derive from your interest in this whole like legacy (laughs) right more so than it will be in uh you're wanting to be entertained by like a story or a moving drama it's sort of a um uh museum piece in some ways and i don't mean that in a in a pejorative way i just mean it as a a statement of um opinion for sure um i i i i'm very sad to report guys that we are all equally competent under the uh, odd man hypothesis i think we it's a toss-up for all of us um <laughs> oh shit yeah right i don't know who it would be uh, i'd come down to a, ba- a battle of i don't even know at that point if aaron were here he would be the least suited for it so he i would, guess yeah that he's not it uh wow good point yeah he's the closest closest to married life um we'll i mean as, as sports guy i guess i'll fall on the the odd man sword since I mean, those charts were all about who like can most, you know, competently climb ladders, dodge lasers. Yeah, you're, the, you're definitely probably the most in shape. You're certainly more in shape than I am. Right, and sports are a thing that people actually look for in another person to like find commonality and social interest points. So I think you're, I don't know, maybe a little further away than Harry and I in terms of the odd man. Um, That's a good point. The oddest man. All right, oddest man. I. <laughs> Uh, I think I think we're ready for a segment are where we, we have. Yeah. Are, oh wait, wait, wait! Do you have more thoughts before formal? Um... I yeah, I I didn't know if we wanted to comment on the monkey, uh, or or leave sure. it be. That, that seems it. like uh, I'll I'll try my hand at it. Please interrupt me if this is uh, if I'm not doing a good job. You fucked it. up already. I know, uh, but uh, I'll talk about for sure. 
Uh, yeah, it's, um, so we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in it now. <laughs> we're, we're in the Andromeda strain. Uh, we're, we're testing, uh, I, I think we're basically just exposing test subjects to to strands of the virus or something at this point, right? Um, and there there are monkeys, there are there are rats. Uh, there's a scene where we're exposing the monk uh, a, a monkey test subject to, uh, you know, we're attempting to to find you know way to to beat this thing. And there's a like a thirty second continuous shot of this monkey who. Uh, I guess stepping away from the movie, uh, like the backstory is that this mo- this monkey was was getting actual real life suffocated, um, being deprived of oxygen, and you know we're recording that and coding that as this monkey is slowly dying. Um, it is a real monkey, not a puppet, not you know a, a stuffed animal uh, or anything like that. And um, yeah, after after Robert Wise or whomever called cut, um, the monkey was quickly you know resuscitated brought back to life that was the only they only did that in one shot because of the danger of it and i think if you look uh, i remember reading if you look closely enough at the shot there's like the the trainer or whoever is whoever was responsible for resuscitating the monkey like you can see their shadow or something like coming into frame but it was something where to their credit it was like well we we can't really redo this this is like we we have one shot at it and we're just going to roll with this because it's so dangerous um but that was uh, one of the mo- like most uncomfortable things I've ever seen, uh, in a movie for for some time. Um, like it was like very like I I was physically squirming and very physically uncomfortable uh w- with watching that. That was incredibly jarring. Uh, yeah, and it's sort of you know ins- insidiously I guess in a way used like that's justified internally anyway by the filmmakers in in say in favor of like the tone that they're building the very realistic the very like moment to moment uh the the scientific method i guess it it is incredibly uncomfortable it's like and they do the same thing with a rat later on i believe uh i don't know if it was the exact same method of co2 being injected into the into the room was was the uh was the method there but um it's kind of like the end of apocalypse now where they captured footage of uh, locals where they were shooting, um, sacrificing an animal, uh, which was like real animal death. It's like that is uncomfortable, and this is uncomfortable in the in sort of the same way, but like less justifiably here because this is exclusively for the pers- purposes of entertainment. But and the comparison to um, Apocalypse Now is like at least what was going on in the background was like a natural thing that was happening in the in the in the community, in the area that they were filming. And I don't know if, I, if I'm referencing anything that nobody uh, knows about, but like while I was watching that scene, feeling uncomfortable, got the same feeling as the end of uh, apocalypse. Now. Um, yeah, I, uh, I too was uncomfortable. It's, it's something to note, I guess, if you're going to watch this movie and have a particular sensitivity to that, uh, it's probably something that maybe, maybe skip the movie or, uh, skip the scene. Um, worth mentioning though, worth mentioning. Yeah, it sucks. It's like, it's, it's a notable, notably upsetting sequence, even if you don't know the backstory, right? Like, I think that we had talked about Cody, how, like, I didn't know that the, that the monkey was actually being suffocated. Um, I was just so, like, adversely affected by watching it happen that I looked it up and found out that that's what was happening. So it does look realistic. Uh, so if, again, like Jason said, if you're upset, um, maybe skip that scene or something. It, uh, it fucking sucks, right? Like it's, that's sort of an interesting, um, cautionary corollary to this movie sensibility is that like that sort of striving for 
process-oriented realism can create some uh, challenges or, or problematic elements by re reflecting the value systems of actual, um, like, fucked up oppressive systems in, in a weird way. Like, I know that this is sort of a weird transition to this, right? But, but it's sort of like how I, this movie doesn't, doesn't do a very good job of being not jingoist, even though it's uh, sort of gestures at some sort of anti-military industrial complex um, uh, feelings with, with the fact that the wildfire was actually designed for germ warfare, but it's still ultimately about like, like jerking off uh, military scientists and how cool and good they are kind of like contagion was. And like, it's so interested in, in processes that it is perfectly comfortable for the sake of the shot inflicting this suffering on this animal that like, in my opinion is not justified, right? Like you can just use a puppet. Not that, you know, yeah. like I'm an animal rights um, expert that, that has the right to talk about that. But like, I, I think that sucks. Right. Uh, and um, it's, it's, it's just interesting, right? It's sort of like a, a movie that wants to be outside of those things in a, in a way that I think a lot of real scientists and uh, people want to be amoral in a way that you can't actually be maybe. And like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not accusing the movie of anything uh, or anything like that. It was just an interesting tension that I uh, felt a little bit. Yeah. Uh, again, I think it, I think the the thing with the monkey and the way that it treats animals and the way that it treats people and the way that it treats the world and the way that it treats viruses is just in support of that idea that I brought up before. And I'm just going to, I guess, like just jerk off about my own point is that like in service of a very stoic worldview, it sacrifices a lot of its humanity, I guess, like the, the, again, like the standout right. exception being Dr. Leavitt or Levitt, um, who is like ultimately sort of victim to that same, theoretical mindset uh but um does anybody else have any final thoughts any uh any uh, i guess any, we have a smaller team any cody's noties any yeah oh, cody's noties i yeah sorry i didn't mean to to halt the transition before no not at all yeah uh got a a few here i've got some uh you know i for myself uh when i'm watching uh a movie of a different era i try to contextualize the movie and the time at which it came out just to kind of world build it i guess in a way for my own dumb brain but uh this movie came out the same year as uh the french connection clockwork orange the last picture show clute uh and also previous episode mccabe and mrs miller um so relatively good company imo um we mentioned Robert Wise. Uh, he directed Andromeda Strain. Uh, his two most famous works uh, are more than likely Sound of Music and West Side Story. Those are um, probably regarded uh, by many as uh, like all-time classics uh, in their own ways. Uh, I didn't realize this. Uh, Robert Wise also was the he he was the editor for Citizen Kane. Uh, at age 27. So at age what? 27, he, he turned in one of the, like, one of the best, like, like Citizen Kane is 
uh, again, we're talking about like what people regard things, but like Citizen Kane is is frequently cited as one of the best edited movies uh, of all time. And he did that at age 27. Uh, he was nominated for an Oscar. He didn't win. Um, can't remember what did it might. Uh, actually, no, I can't remember. But uh, that stood out to me. That was uh, that was wild. Um, and it gave me Robert, another reason to feel Robert sad. Wise, Robert Wise was editing Citizen Kane at 27. Here I am at 27 making podcasts about Hamilton. I hate <sighs> myself. You hate to see it. Uh, but don't uh, you don't hate to hear it, probably. I haven't heard it yet. But folks, listen to Mintrax. Um, we mentioned uh, Paula Kelly, uh, who plays Karen Anson in Andromeda Strain, uh, the other, um, you know, kind of top uh, woman character. Uh, she actually passed away uh, this last year on February 8th. Um, she uh, is probably most famously, I haven't seen Soylent Green, um, but she has, uh, from what I can see, a, a starring or, or supporting role in that. Um, sorry, I can't be more specific. Um, but th- but that and Andromeda Strain are probably her two most famous, uh, famous movies. Um, so. Sorry to hear that. Um, rest in peace. Uh, and um, I guess the only other thing I wanted to to throw out, um, it was more of an observation early on, um, and I guess later too, the, um, there were uh, a few typewriters, and there was also the, uh, the you know, in in the wildfire laboratories, that, that level with, um, you know, things getting printed out and then a bell going off when communication is received. It, uh, the, the way that was, presented and the way the uh i guess the sound editing of the movie um was pieced together it made me think of all the president's men in that uh like the the typewriters in in all the president's men were um i don't know exactly what was done um i'm not a a sound mixer myself uh but the the typewriters in their own ways you know the keyboard is is visualized as a a type of i don't want to say weapon but like each keystroke feels like its own, like kind of like a, a, a gun blast, you know, it's very loud. It's very um, like with it comes heavy consequences, you know, like it's, it's uh, a motif that needs uh, that, that requires attention to be paid uh, to it because so much of, of the movie, it's communication, it's, it's themes, it's everything flows through what passes through, um, totally. the typewriter, uh, what passes through on paper. And this movie kind of had elements of that too. Um, that's sort of something I thought early on. And then there was that payoff later with, you know, communication being missed, um, you know, Chekhov's broken bell or whatever you want to call it. Um, so that's, uh, that, that was something that I, I liked, uh, I don't know. Um, and all the president's men is a, is a much better movie than Andromeda strain and people should watch it. <laughs> Those are great noties, Cody. Oh, Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, all the, all the strainies out there are going to be gunning for you now. You better, uh, deactivate your Twitter account. Because... Uh, you also mentioned McCabe and Mrs. Miller. That's also a much better movie than it is. Listen oh, to our yeah. episode, Try Love episode 15, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Thank you so much. That's a movie that I've, I, that's a weird episode for us because I feel like we were lukewarm about that movie when we recorded about it. And I think it's a masterpiece now. So I don't know what I was thinking back then. Oh yeah. That movie rules. I can, I can grow and change. Humans are capable of growth change. Uh, the, the, what are the messages of McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Uh, thank you very much for listening to Try Love. This has been our episode about the Andromeda Strain. Uh, you can still get tickets for this, I believe, that playing uh, at, at the end of this week uh, as you're listening to this. 
at the Trilon Cinema. Go online, find tickets. Whether or not you go, you can uh, buy a ticket and then rent it, buy a ticket and then pirate it. I didn't say that. Uh, and uh, find ways to support the Trilon through their um, their uh, discount cards and merch that they occasionally put up, uh, live streams that benefit them and other repertory cinemas around the country. Uh, my name is Jason Daftis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. You can find our podcast, Trilove, at Trilove Podcast. And you can follow the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema. Uh, I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. Ragweed pollen.